Lord, as we've gathered here together in your name this morning. We come together in hope because we know that you live, our Lord. We know that your Spirit is here among us. And Lord, as we open your breathed out word to us now, we pray that you, through your Spirit, would make it alive to us. Make what is words on a page alive in our hearts. Lord, we've all come from weeks that have been either frustrating or really good or just another week. Lord, help us to set these things aside. To focus our minds and our hearts on your word so that you can teach us. Take our minds, take my words and make them the living word of God as you breathe out to us. Speak your word, I pray. Change our hearts and use us for your glory. Amen. I'd like you to turn with me as we carry on our studies um, in Luke chapter 20. This morning we're in Luke chapter 20, verse 39 to 47. And while you're looking that up, um, look up Matthew chapter 22 as well. That's our parallel passage. Matthew chapter 22, and I'll be referring there straight after this one. So Luke chapter 20, verse 39 to 47. Remember this situation? Jesus has just completed speaking to the Sadducees. They thought they knew about the resurrection, but Jesus showed them that actually they didn't know about the afterlife. They had presumptions about it. They assumed they knew, but he taught them about what would actually happen. And as he was teaching them, the Sadducees knew that they were facing the living God, the one who knew everything. And the Pharisees, they're all in a flutter. Why? Because Jesus had put the Sadducees down. And there was this love-hate relationship between them. And so this morning, Jesus, through this passage, addresses the Pharisees and shows them that actually they're just people like the Sadducees with the same problems. Let's see what God says to them. So Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. But they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive 
the greater condemnation. Now turn with me, if you would, to the parallel passage because it just adds a bit of color as we look at what the Lord says here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. We've added a little bit of colour to that passage. So let's see what Jesus speaks about here. You see, he's addressing the Pharisees. What is he addressing them about? They thought the Sadducees had been caught out because of incorrect doctrine. Yes, we know God's word better than them. But Jesus teaches them here, actually you Pharisees, you too have incorrect doctrine. You too have incorrect assumptions. And so let's look at these. And he asks a question this time. It's his turn to ask a question. They saw themselves as learned in the Scriptures. It's a title they had given themselves. Matthew chapter 22 verse 41 tells us that. And so Jesus intends to expose the Pharisees' own ignorance and unbelief. Remember that was the problem with the Sadducees? Ignorance of God's Word and unbelief. They didn't want to believe what they already knew. The Pharisees have exactly the same problem. Ignorance and unbelief. And so Jesus hones in on a core issue to the Pharisees. And that was around the sonship of the Messiah. Who is the son? Who is the Messiah? Is he really God's son? The Pharisees denied Jesus was the son of God, you see. This was one they had seen growing up in front of them. This Jesus of Nazareth. He can't be the son of God. Yes, he might be... a son of David. You see, they knew his mother, they knew his heritage, they knew his whole lineage through Mary. And so, yes, they knew he was a son of David. But the son of David? The Messiah? No, can't be. They wouldn't believe it. Now, before we carry on, this is one of the points where many criticize Scripture as well. When they look at the lineages in Scripture, they'll say, you see, the Bible can't even agree with itself. And we're going to look at one of those passages. So we're a bit in brackets now. And then we'll step back to the passage again. Many criticize the Bible using Luke 3.23. What does that verse say? It says that Jesus was the son of Joseph. He was the son of Joseph. That's what it says there. And Joseph wasn't in the kingly or Davidic line at all. When they tracked back his lineage, he came from the legal side. And so Jesus got his legal status from his father, Joseph. But people who say that haven't looked properly at the verse. You see, let's look at the whole of verse 23. It says, 
verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. In other words, as was supposed, so the people thought, the son of Joseph. You see, what they do by thinking he was just the son of Joseph, they deny the virgin birth. Of course, Joseph was his father. That's what the Bible says. But they don't read further, you see, because the rest of that verse says something else. It says, Joseph was the son of Heli, or your Bible might say Eli. So, what's that all about? I'll come back to that. One of the criticisms of Scripture too is they say, if you cross-reference Matthew chapter 1 verse 16, it says there that Jacob was the father of Joseph. Aha, uh-huh, they say. So Luke says it was Jacob. So it's either Jacob was the father of Joseph or Eli. So who is it? You see, according to Jewish tradition of that day, the legal lineage or being the heir ran through the father. That's what that whole story last uh, two weeks ago was about with a woman with seven husbands. There had to be a male heir so that the son could inherit the legal status from the father. And so the legal status came through Jacob and Joseph to Jesus. So then where does that leave us with Eli or Heli or whatever his name is? It's the same name, you see, depending on which um, version you're reading. But it all pointed to Mary's father. Eli or Heli was Mary's father. You see, we have to know another Jewish tradition. And that was that in lineages, in Jewish lineages, the woman was not named. They would always name the husband of the woman. And so by marrying her, the man, Joseph in this case, had become her father's son. And that's why he gets mentioned in the lineage. And so there's no discrepancy. It's pointing the same way, but it's saying something else. What is it saying, you see? Who was Heli? Well, Heli was the direct descendant of Nathan. And who was Nathan? The father of King David. And so we see Jesus is directly in the kingly line as well. Just like the prophet said. And so by mentioning it in this way, the prophets' prophecies come true. And so the Pharisees completely understood that Jesus was a direct descendant of David. They knew the lineages backwards. He was a direct descendant, a human descendant. He was a son of David with a small s. He was a man. Do you see their reasoning? However, Jesus was standing in front of them, and now we're back in the passage. Jesus was standing in front of them, and he was claiming more. Jesus was claiming to be the son of David, capital S. God. The Messiah, the Christos, man and God. That they couldn't accept. And so there are three suppositions that Jesus wanted the people, the Pharisees and us today to accept and believe. And it's these three and we're going to look at them closely this morning. First one is this. 
that David's son is not merely David's descendant or a man, but he is David's Lord. He is God. Second supposition is that being David's Lord, he is the Son of God. You need to track with me this morning. And thirdly, since he is the Son of God, everyone, including these Pharisees, should place their trust in him. Because that is what God says they must do. Let's look at each of those in turn now. First one. David's son is not merely David's descendant. He is David's Lord. Jesus tackles him with this question and that's why I referred to Matthew chapter 22. He asks him a question. He says, Whose son is the promised Christ? There's only one answer they know. And so they say it in Matthew. He's the son of David. Small s. It's a stock standard answer they'd learned in Pharisee school. Pharisee course 101. But what Jesus was doing was, he was referring them back to when the crowds had called him the son of David. Remember a little while back? And it's not such a wee while, it's only a wee while back in their own time over here. The crowds, as they came into, Jesus, into Jerusalem, the crowds had shouted out, this is the son of David. A messianic term. And the crowds were saying, he is the Messiah. And the Pharisees couldn't accept that. Because they had even objected to Jesus' disciples. How dare your master accept us? But the thing is, Jesus had accepted the people's praise. And they could see that he had accepted the people's praise. And they couldn't accept it. They couldn't make this connection between Jesus the son of David and Lord. And so to prove his case, what does Jesus do? He appeals to a patriarch. Remember the Sadducees? They'd appeal to a patriarch, Moses. Well, Jesus is appealing to another patriarch now, King David. They all held David in very high esteem. And so he says, okay, what does David himself say about the Messiah? You Pharisees. And so he refers them to Psalm 110 verse 1. And that's what you read in our text there. A messianic psalm. He quotes for them. Why does, what does David then say about the Messiah? This is what David says. Jesus says, says to them, Why does David in the spirit that is under God's inspiration, and he specifically uses those words in Matthew, Why does David in the spirit Call the Messiah Lord or divine. If David is in the Spirit, if he is under God's inspiration, you Pharisees need to listen. Why does he, under God's inspiration, call the Messiah divine? And then he quotes the words, the very direct words they would know. What did David say? He said this. David said, The Lord, or Yahweh, Jehovah said to my Lord, Yahweh Adonai, both words referring to God. So God said to God, this is David speaking, God said to God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who's speaking here? Jehovah God is speaking to his son. And he's saying to his son, who is God, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When did these words come into realization? They would come into realization a little while ahead when Jesus had been killed, he had been resurrected, he had ascended into heaven. That is when they come into play. God would say to Jesus at that stage, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what was he doing here? He was referring to the resurrection again, just like he had with the Sadducees. Amazing words. These are the very same words that would come into effect after Jesus was raised from the dead and had ascended into heaven, proving him to be the Messiah and Lord. And so if David is calling the Messiah his Lord... It can't just be his physical descendant, you see. Closed case. So that's the first supposition. That David's son is not merely David's descendant, he is David's Lord. Jesus had proved that to them. Second thing. So, it runs on from there, says Jesus, that if he is David's Lord, then he is also, who? The Son of God. You see, Jesus is building a watertight case here because the Pharisees saw themselves as experts in the law and they were experts at building watertight cases for themselves. And so Jesus makes this a case that they would not win. There's an implication here. He's saying if, if, David is, if Jesus is David's Lord, then he is the Son of God. The implication is that if David recognizes the Messiah's Lordship, then you Pharisees should too, and you aren't. He's your great patriarch, isn't he? If David recognizes the Messiah as Lord, then you should as well, and you aren't. You are denying him. And the second implication was this, that if God himself testifies that the Son of God is the Messiah by virtue of his resurrection, and if God seats the Messiah at his right hand as Lord, then you Pharisees should acknowledge him too, and you aren't. There's a third supposition here. And Jesus turns us from a supposition into a proposition. Because they clearly understood now what he was saying. He makes a proposition to them. He's saying, since he is the Son of God, everyone should place their trust in him including you Pharisees. You see, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, was standing right in front of them. They'd heard his teachings, they'd seen the wondrous deeds that he'd been doing. He's now at the end of his time of ministry. They still wouldn't believe, and yet God's mercy comes out to them. I'm standing in front of you. I've proved to you who I am. There is still time for you to find the mercy of God. Come to me, believe. You are not believing at this stage because you've got wrong presuppositions, because you've got hardened hearts, because you've got blind eyes. You are ignorant and you are unbelieving. But God's mercy is open to you as well. Believe in me. They understood the implications. But would they believe? What does our text say? No, they were just stumped. No one dared ask him any more questions. And Matthew says, they walked away. And from here on, 
We get into Jesus' last words to the crowds. There's no more argument with the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It's over. From here on, one more. Um, he teaches them about the end times. And then the whole procession starts. Him in the garden, crucified. It's over. One last message of mercy to them. The Messiah is before you. Will you believe? But they turn around and walk away. And that's why Jesus turns to the crowds and to his disciples, verses 45 to 47. And what does he do here? He warns them about people. Some of these crowds followed these Pharisees around. They had their own throng of people around them as disciples. He warns the disciples and the other disciples of the Pharisees, watch out for corrupt practice. You see, their teaching is corrupt. Their doctrine is wrong. But wrong doctrine leads to wrong practice. We saw that last week. Beware of the Pharisees. You scribes, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he speaks out of woe over them. Matthew speaks out woes. And so we have to look at both pictures here. He speaks out judgment calls against them. What What were they doing wrong? He lists the things. Let's look at that verse. Verse 45. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You see, all these teachings that they knew had never reached their hearts. And so their actions hadn't been affected. And so one of the things they did was they had this pretentiousness about them. They loved to be seen in their long religious robes. It's a bit like our mayor. Imagine what you'd think of our mayor. I better not go there too far now either. But imagine what you think of our mayor if the mayor would just appear all day in their regal robes and you went to a coffee and there's the mayor. Hello. I'm your mayor. What would you think of this person? Get off your high horse, man! You see, but that's exactly what these Pharisees were doing. They were pretentious. They loved to be seen in public wearing their regal robes of office. They liked this outward seemliness. They weren't worried about inward holiness, which is what they were supposed to be teaching the people. They weren't practicing what they were preaching. They loved public titles. They loved greetings in the marketplaces. Morning, Rabbi. Hello, Father. Good morning, teacher. In the marketplaces, being seen by everyone. And so they would walk around in their Wanganui markets every morning. Saturday mornings out there, people would see them. But, divine recognition, they didn't see that as important. It didn't feature with them. They loved to be seen in the synagogues, on the Sabbath, seated in the chief seats, even in the seat of Moses. And if you know the layout of a synagogue, they had the, the congregation and then they had a raised platform on which the readers of the Torah would come and on which the prayer leaders would come and stand and pray. But right in front of this platform were some seats facing the people. Those seats 
The Pharisees loved to sit on those seats. And they would be led in specially by people and they would wait till everyone was seated and then they would be led in and they would sit in those front seats. They would turn around and face the people. They loved to be seen. Reminds me a bit of our mayoral races, but anyway, that's above the issue as well. Selfishness. Jesus says, they love to be seated in the places of honour at feasts. Now we've, we've learned all about feasts in the book of Luke. You see at those banquets, the best and the, the most food and the best food is kept for the reserved seats for the honoured guests. And so people would sit in those, they would try to get into those best seats. And all the poorer seats, they got less food, less quality food. And the poor, they would just stand around and if the rich threw something away, the, the, the poor would grab for it. Or they would sit at the footstool of the rich and any scraps that fell off the table, they would eat those. Jesus said, remember the parables he t- told about the feast back in Luke? He said, don't go for those chief seats. Rather wait for the guest, for the, the host to invite you to a seat of honour. Otherwise, they might say to you, excuse me, someone else is sitting in your important seat. Would you come and sit here? And then they take you to the cheap seats. And then you would lose honour in the face of everyone. Jesus had taught them all these things. And yet these Pharisees who should know better were showing their selfishness because when they were, they were invited to these feasts, they would rush to get there and they would clamber for those best seats. And they would usually get given them because they were important. Nothing about humility. Nothing like the tax collector in the temple, Luke 18 verse 13, who could hardly come into the temple but beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's humility. That's what the Pharisees should have shown. What else did they do? Jesus says they devour widows' houses. You see, one of the temple responsibilities was to look after widows and orphans, right? It goes way back to Deuteronomy. God in His laws had said, you have to look after those who are helpless, those who can't help themselves. And the people in charge of the temple were supposed to do that. These were religious leaders of the people. They were supposed to look after the people. They were also the religious lawyers, the Pharisees. And so they would have to do with deeds of settlement. And so when a widow needed to sell a property because she had to feed herself or because the property came up, then they would be the ones doing the business for her. But what did these Pharisees do? They did the business, but they kept so much of the proceeds. And sometimes they would even sell the the properties of these widows and buy them themselves under other names. And so Jesus says, you devour widows' houses. You are supposed to feed them. You are taking the food from their mouths and eating them themselves. You are devouring the widow's house. A a widow couldn't look after herself. She had to have a male to protect her in that society. But these males were dispossessing these widows of their own properties, of their livelihoods. And many of these widows landed up in poverty because of it. And that would lead on to the next little bit in your passage, if you look at ahead at, verse, at chapter 21, where Jesus speaks about the widow's offering. But I'm not going to do that this morning. You see, it's all ties up here. What else did they do? Jesus isn't finished. 
He says, for a pretense they make long prayers, Matthew says. They like to be heard. So when there's a prayer meeting, there's only one person that prays because there's only time for one. Because they carry on forever and ever and ever. I used to go to a church, they used to have an old guy like that. And when he got up to pray, man, we all sighed. Because he would never stop. And after a while, someone had to actually chip in in his prayer and kind of end it off for him. But you see, they were like this. Long prayers. The longer the prayer, the more holy it is. But you see, these weren't prayers of the heart. These weren't prayers that God heard. He didn't hear a word of that long prayer because their hearts weren't right before him. What does Jesus say? Woe to them. They will receive the greater condemnation. Why? Because they were supposed to know God's word the best by their own admission and so also had the greater responsibility of obedience to God's word. God has always taught that in scriptures. Paul emphasizes that later. Don't clamor to become teachers of God's word. Why? Because teachers have greater responsibility for what they know. These Pharisees supposedly knew God's word. They had a greater responsibility towards obedience of God's word, but they failed miserably. Well, you say, how does that apply then to me? There's only two applications, main applications here this morning. I want to ask you this this morning. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? There are many today who would say he's just a historical figure. Just like the Pharisees. He's a son, small s, of David. And the lineages might have record of him, but he's not, no, no one better than that. He's not a Messiah. He's not God. But you see this morning, if he is the Son of God, if you say he is the Son of God, capital S, then he is the Messiah. And if he is the Messiah, then there's a direct link to you and I. Because God says, he is Lord. And if he's Messiah, and if he's Lord, there's a responsibility to you and I on how we work with that. If he's really Lord, do you and I acknowledge him as Lord. How do you acknowledge Him as Lord? Well, you've got to ask Him to be Lord in your life. Have you? As you sit here this morning, have you asked Jesus to be Lord in your life? The one who is in control of your life. The one who is in charge of your life. The one who you will follow willingly. The one who's obedient, who you will be obedient to when He asks you to do things. Is He the Lord of your life? Have you asked Him? Your parents might have asked Him. Have you asked Him to be Lord? Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing to return to judge this earth. Are you ready to face your Lord? He is the Lord who in mercy this morning also reaches out to you to kneel before Him. But He is also the perfect judge who can see your heart and who will weigh you up by it against His perfect holiness. He is Lord. He is judge. He is merciful. But He is perfectly holy. 
Where are you in relation to this Lord, Jesus Christ? Believers here today, you say Jesus is your Lord. If He is your Lord, what does that mean? It means we are not His peers. We are His servants. We need to be reminded of that again in our modern age, you see. Because in our modern age, it's all about me. I get it from all over the place. And so for someone else to be in charge of me, that kind of goes against my crop. It sits right here, right? But He is my Lord. I'm not His peer. I'm His servant. If He commands, I do. He calls me to be humble, to walk before Him in humility daily. He calls me to have a living relationship with Him daily. He calls me to know His Word and to subject myself to His Word, not my wisdom, His wisdom. He wants me to allow His Spirit to do the necessary shaping, the necessary surgery and the necessary recreation in me. I'll be allowing Him to be Lord of our lives. Or are we living in disobedience before Him? Do you just say He is Lord? But your actions show that He isn't. Same as the Pharisees. And that leads me to the second point. Does your practice measure up to your creed? Does what you say measure up to what you do? You see the Pharisees and the scribes taught and preached one thing but they, but they lived quite another. And if you go and read Matthew, you'll see many more details there about how Jesus spells that out. They were leaders in the temple on the Sabbath. They were in the first row of the, of the temple. But they were only looking out for number one. Not for God. They led all the Torah studies, studies in the week and they expounded on the teachings. But the teachings did not reach their hearts. There was no humility to be found in them. Tell me, does this perhaps in some small way picture your life? Because sometimes I find that it pictures mine. Our heads can get big too quickly. Before we know it, there's pride in us. The Lord calls us to be humble before Him. Are you perhaps hanging out for the acclamation and the recognition of people around you? Are you window dressed on the outside as a Christian, but the inside is a whole different shop? Are you too mainly looking out for number one? You see, if you are, there's another Lord in your life. His name is not Jesus Christ, but there's an idol's name tag hanging around his neck. We need to deal with it. Jesus is Lord in our lives. And what you might think is pious, religious humility in front of other people is in fact pompous pride. Pride dresses up like a religious sheep. But the true creature is exposed when the Lord weighs the heart by the walk and finds it wanting. He calls it hypocrisy. There's no other cure for hypocrisy but to ask the Almighty One, Jehovah, and Jesus the Lord, 
to make you whole. He can and He will if you ask Him. I want to end this morning with Philippians. Beautiful verse. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 to 11. And I've put it up here for you. This is what it says. Therefore, we actually sang about this this morning. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. Who elevated who? God elevated God. God elevated his son, Jesus Christ, the one who was on earth, the one who is the Messiah. He gave him the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow. Take note of that word, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare. You see, there's bowing and there's declaring. There's creed and there's practice. Do they measure up? And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. In your word and in your deed, is Jesus Christ Lord? Because then it will be to the glory of God the Father. Anything else is hypocrisy. I pray that the Holy Spirit would make work of this. Every single one of us sitting here as believers need this word in our lives because pride creeps in on us when we're not looking. We need to hear this daily. We need to take our hearts before the, before the Lord daily and ask Him, Lord, deal with the pride in my heart. I can't see it. You can, Lord. We can't see pride. Others can see it in us. God can definitely see it. Lord, deal with the pride in me. Otherwise, it blossoms out into hypocrisy. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, sometimes we live our Christian lives every day of the week and it's as if nothing's changed in us. We just go about our daily life. Week in, week out. But Lord, we've heard from your word this morning that you, Lord Jesus, are to be Lord in our lives. You are to be the God-man. The one who is man, but the one who is God. You are to rule over our lives. We are to be in submission before you. We are to trust you with our lives. Lord, help us to acknowledge that not just in our heads and in our hearts, but in our feet and in our hands. Help us to live lives which are obedient to you in humble submission and in humble thankfulness that you have shown us mercy. Do your work among us, Lord. Because the world out there is watching and they can see the pride in us, even as unbelievers. And that doesn't point to you. It points away. And our lives are stamped with a big label that says, hypocrite. Save us from hypocrisy, Lord. May we live lives which are obedient to you and which give glory to God our Father. Amen.